Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is your host, Morteza Hajizadeh, and today I'm honored to be speaking to Dr. Carrie Wilkinson. Dr. Carrie Wilkinson is a postdoctoral fellow, uh, postdoctoral fellow at Ludwig Maximilian University of Munich, and uh, she's here to talk with us about a wonderful book she published with Cambridge University Press just a few months ago, uh, called Empire of Influence, the East India Company and the Making of Indirect Rule. Callie, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, can you please introduce yourself briefly and tell us a little about your field of expertise and how uh, you became interested in this area? Right. So as you mentioned, I'm a research fellow in Munich and a historian. And for the past 10 years, uh, my focus has really been on tracing the activities of the British East India Company, a private trading corporation that was founded in 1600 and abolished in 1858. This company was originally intended to function primarily as a commercial enterprise, a trading venture, but over the 18th century, it developed into a major political and military power with a territorial empire in South Asia. Today, we might regard this company state as somewhat unusual, weird, or idiosyncratic, but historically, private entrepreneurs backed by royal or parliamentary charters were actually really important agents of imperial expansion worldwide. So with support and oversight from the British government, the East India Company built up an extensive administrative apparatus, as well as some of the largest standing armies of its time. So for historians, the East India Company's empire is interesting because it represents this period of experimentation when British soldiers and imperial officials developed many of the tactics that they would later apply in empires across Asia, Africa, and the Indian Ocean world. So in short, if you want to understand how and why Britain emerged as a global imperial power, the East India Company's activities in India are a pretty good place to start. And... um... How, how did this book come about? Why did you decide to write this book this about this particular topic? And I'm really intrigued by the title of the book, Empire of Influence. So it would be great if you could talk about the story of the inception of the book and also the, the title, what it refers to. So the book was actually originally a PhD dissertation, although it's been pretty significantly revised since then. And by the time I started my graduate studies, I already had a pretty deep interest in the East India Company. I'd been inspired by the many brilliant books that had been written about it, um, particularly those that demonstrated how the company had to accommodate itself to India's rich political and legal traditions, while also manipulating those traditions to suit its own purposes. Um, But even despite this rich literature, I felt like one of the most interesting aspects of the company's operations had been relatively neglected, and this was its relationships with neighboring Indian states. In 1991, Michael Fisher wrote this really classic text outlining how the East India Company established a system of indirect rule in India. Uh, And this book really laid the groundwork for future historians of the company like myself. But surprisingly, few scholars have followed in his footsteps. 
We have so many cultural histories that examine the company's law courts and their revenue offices, but there's so much that we don't know about the residencies where the company's political agents at foreign courts were based. The books that have been written about indirect rule in India focus overwhelmingly on the late 19th century at the height of British power in India, thereby ignoring the complicated story of how we got there in the first place. So what I really wanted to do with the book is emphasize how important this earlier history is and show what we might learn if we apply a cultural historical approach to understanding indirect rule uh, and give it the same amount of attention that we do so-called British India. Um, when it comes to the title, when I talk about an empire of influence, what I'm referring to is a distinct style of imperial rule that depended a lot on the informal and ill-defined authority exercised by individuals. So by contrast, in so-called British India, so places that the company administered directly, imperial control was exercised through government institutions. The company were the policy makers. They had the ability to make and to enforce law. But outside of its own territories, the company still wanted to exercise that same control, but they had to adopt a slightly different approach. So they started by making alliances with neighboring powers. Gradually, these alliances became more and more asymmetrical as the company introduced restrictions that limited the political independence of their supposed allies. Um, although the treaties themselves were critical to this process, just as significant, I would argue, was the personal influence of the company's agents on the ground. They were the ones who were responsible for making sure that the terms of these treaties were enforced. And to do so, they used all kinds of methods from intimidation to whining and dining. So in other words, by describing this as an empire of influence, what I'm trying to do is to emphasize that empire in India was also a matter of sociability, of relationships, of more nebulous but no less insidious forms of coercion than those that we typically associate with empire. It's fascinating. And uh, I'm sure as we go ahead, we'll talk about some of the techniques that they used. Uh, and uh, so you, you mentioned this subsidiary alliance system that sustained the British Empire through its indirect rule. And that's what the title of the book refers to, the Empire of Influence. Can you please talk more about that and tell us what it was like and when it was first established? So the subsidiary alliance system refers to this network of treaties that the company concluded with neighboring Indian states. And according to these treaties, the company agreed to provide troops in exchange for subsidies or else for the lease of productive lands. As part of these treaties, the company began to station political agents called residents at the courts of allied powers. And these residents are really the central characters of my book. The first subsidiary alliance was concluded with the Nawab of Awad in 1765 after the conquest of Bengal. So this system really developed in tandem with the formation of a territorial empire by the East India Company. Across the decades, the terms of the treaties changed and they became increasingly unequal. The treaty concluded with the Nizam of Hyderabad in 1800 marked a major turning point 
by placing key restrictions on the Nizam's sovereign powers. The treaty required him to submit disputes with neighboring polities to the arbitration of the company, and the treaty limited his ability even to communicate with other courts, except through the channel of the resident. So this 1800 treaty set a precedent that was then applied to other courts as the subsidiary alliance system rapidly expanded across the early decades of the 19th century, eventually encompassing most of central India. So this period of experimentation and consolidation in the early 19th century is the focus of my book, which begins shortly before the treaty with Hyderabad was concluded. And, and there's an important uh, figure that you talk about in the book, Governor General Richard, uh, Richard Wellesley. Uh, how did he change the, co the focus of the company to be the ultimate political and military arbiter in, in the region? So Richard Wellesley was an Anglo-Irish aristocrat and politician, brother to the much more famous Arthur Wellesley, Duke of Wellington. And he was appointed governor general of the East India Company in 1797, arriving in 1798. He was actually only in India for less than 10 years, but in that short period, he introduced a lot of changes and did a lot of damage. His period in office coincided with the global wars unleashed by the French Revolution. And in this context, Wellesley was determined to defend the company's empire in India from the French, as well as other internal threats. At the same time, however, he also wanted to satisfy his own ambition and his thirst for glory. To achieve this double objective, Wellesley advanced a new vision of the company's role in the Indian political landscape. And this new vision really forms the basis for my book. According to this vision, the company would become the paramount power in India. So that meant that although Indian allies would retain nominal independence over their internal affairs, the company would control their foreign policy. Wellesley's justification for this policy was that by controlling foreign affairs within the subcontinent, the company could prevent conflict between rival Indian powers, thereby introducing peace and prosperity. But in reality, the strategy was very much one of divide and conquer. Wellesley wanted to ensure that Indian states would not combine against the company or do anything contrary to its interests. Now, not everyone within the company or in Britain agreed with this aggressive approach. Uh, and actually, Wellesley's successors in office would try to retreat somewhat from this really interventionist position. Even so, Wellesley's ideas would have a really lasting legacy. Almost 100 years later, legal theorists would identify this period as one where the ideological foundations for indirect rule were laid. And uh, can you give us like maybe an example of the the way the company is intervening in, in, in matters related to Indian to its Indian allies? So it was in Hyderabad that these ideas were pioneered, and Hyderabad provides some pretty good examples of the kinds of interventions that Wellesley's policy of paramountcy entailed. It's important to note that many of these interventions went far beyond what was allowed by treaty. So not only were the treaties increasingly restrictive in and of themselves, but the company's agents on the ground were infringing even the very limited rights that supposedly remained to Indian states. 
So, for example, in 1804, the company went against the wishes of the ruler of Hyderabad and basically coerced him into selecting their own candidate for chief minister. And this was clearly contravening um, the rule uh, whereby they were not supposed to intervene in the Nizam's internal administration. Just over 10 years later, uh, the resident arrested and imprisoned the Nizam's sons for creating a disturbance in the city, once again transgressing the conditions of the treaty, according to which they were really not supposed to interfere with the Nizam's household. Over the following decades, the resident at Hyderabad would become even more interventionist, for example, by taking over certain responsibilities for revenue collection. Um, but even so, the early examples of the 19th century set important precedents. They would be cited by a parliamentary committee in 1929 to suggest that the treaties that supposedly govern subsidiary alliances had in fact never been contractually binding and that according to usage, British officials should and could decide for themselves where the limits of intervention lay, rather than agreeing to any fixed principles. So all this to say that ideas of paramountcy had a really long legacy that effectively lasted until Indian independence. At different points, people debated the merits of different degrees of intervention. So that did change over time, but the right to intervene was seen as having been firmly established by these precedents. And um, in your book, you have one chapter about the role of uh, intelligence and how it helped operate the company subsidiary alliance system. Uh, can you tell us more about the role of political intelligence? And uh, there was a lot of misinformation forgeries there as well. So it would be great if you could also talk about the sort of strategies that the residents used to identify forgeries and also for transmitting letters at courts. Political intelligence was absolutely vital to the subsidiary alliance system, although perhaps not always in the ways that we might expect from a modern perspective. One of the residents' most important responsibilities was to collect information, and they were able to deploy significant resources and manpower for this purpose. So residents possessed a network of paid informants that they used to spy on politically important figures, to report on troop movements and military preparations, and to assess the likelihood of resistance or unrest. This information would then be transmitted to central government in Calcutta, but it was also exchanged with residents at other courts. So what you have are these information networks that stretch across the subcontinent, seemingly giving the East India Company an advantage over the Indian courts that they were trying to isolate. Even so, what became apparent to me is that falsehoods circulate just as easily as facts across this network. In some cases, as you alluded to, uh, this was disinformation. So disinformation that was purposefully disseminated by the company's enemies or by those attempting to defraud it. To some extent then, the problem for the residents is how to figure out what's true and what is false. At the same time, their job was also more complicated than that because even supposedly false information could actually produce very real consequences. A rumor might not be true, but it could very easily create political problems at court. It could even stoke rebellion among the general population. 
So when residents were handling information, they were not just trying to figure out what was objectively going on in Indian politics, what was true, but they were also trying to get a sense for the talk of the town, which might or might not be true, um, but was still important. Now, when it came to authenticating letters, so identifying forgeries, residents had several approaches that they used. An obvious one was to compare a newly received letter with those already in their possession by looking at the handwriting, the signature, even the seal and the quality of the paper, they could make a pretty good guess as to whether the letter was legitimate. For the most part though, residents had to rely on Indian experts. In the Persianate world to which most of these courts belonged, writing letters was an art form. The residents had men on their staff who were trained from a really young age in the art of letter writing. And these men had the experience and the knowledge to distinguish between genuine letters that had been composed by scribes or those that had been put together by criminals and fraudsters. Residents were not just worried about discovering forgeries, however, but they were also really concerned to prevent them. A lot of the residents' work was conducted in writing, and this meant that there was always the possibility that important documents could be stolen, forged, or even just wrongly translated. So as a result, residents were really cautious about what they put into writing. Where possible, they preferred to meet in person to discuss points of policy with ministers at court. And in cases where they had to resort to the exchange of letters or documents, they tried to deliver the letter by hand so that they could ensure its safe reception and explain how they wanted it to be understood. Often, this means that the documents that survive in the official record are only part of the story. And as historians, we have to use the private letters and journals that remain to try and reconstruct these conversations and negotiations that were taking place, even if we might never fully succeed in uncovering what happened behind closed doors. And, um... When you were introducing the book at the beginning, you talk about residents and you mentioned that they use intimidation tactics as well. So I'm really keen to know what sorts of intimidation tactics did they use and why? And in your book, you also make the case that the tactics that they used were a reflection of their assumptions about India and its government, that it's a corrupt place. Uh, could you please talk about that a little? Yeah, so many of the residents that feature in my book viewed intimidation as an important part of their work, which is somewhat contrary to what we might expect of men who were originally intended to act as diplomats. This intimidation took several forms and it was directed at different targets. So where the ruler was concerned, the most effective form of intimidation was the threat of military action. Residents were not above laying down ultimatums if rulers refused to comply with their instructions. The presence of armed forces at Indian capitals was therefore a really important pillar of the residents' authority. Ostensibly, these forces were meant to serve the ruler. The ruler was the one paying for them, after all. But in reality, the overriding loyalty of these troops was to the company that commanded them. Residents also used the threat of force to discourage popular resistance. 
this could be done by using troops to quell disturbances in the capital, but residents also resorted to acts of theater as well. So what I mean by this is that residents consciously staged what they described explicitly as spectacles of violence, which were intended to deter future challenges to their authority by making extreme examples of people who transgressed against them, whether that be by robbing the residency or by inciting the troops to mutiny. These acts of discipline and punishment included floggings and hangings, but many residents preferred method of punishment was actually shooting the prisoner from a cannon. These acts were not routine, they weren't happening every day, but they were an accepted part of the residents' repertoire. And to justify this behavior, residents invoked deeply embedded British stereotypes about India. According to British conventions, India was pictured as like this land of tyranny and despotism where the strong ruled over the weak. So in this context, the residents argued, the only way to garner respect was to make a clear show of strength. And the most effective way to do that, they believed, was through violence. And uh, did they have any ties with the military in those regions? Did they ever employ the military or instigate the military to be involved? So the residents' relationship with the subsidiary forces was a complicated one. So these armed forces represented a really important source for the resident on the one hand, an instrument um, that he could wield in courtly negotiations. These armed forces were also commanded by European officers who belonged to the same social class as the resident, which meant that these relationships could often become close. So we know from their letters and journals that the residents and their military counterparts hosted balls, dinners, horse races and sporting events, as well as meeting informally to hunt or play billiards, all the typical pastimes of the British gentleman. Despite these ties though, the subsidiary forces could also be a problem for the resident. Although many residents were friends with the officers that commanded the forces stationed with them, some residents were not at all. These relationships could turn into a kind of power struggle where the residents attempted to exert total control over the use of force. And this makes sense because many residents saw the use of military force as an essential part of their political toolkit. The presence of armed forces in the capital could also create some pretty serious tensions with locals. And the residency records include many stories of soldiers who assaulted civilians, insulted courtiers, and otherwise caused minor diplomatic crises. Most frighteningly, for the resident anyway, was the possibility that mutiny within the company's forces might facilitate or inspire rebellion among the wider population. And there were several, several mutinies uh, within the troops during this period. So to conclude, the army was important, but it was also potentially perilous for the company's residents. And... Uh... To follow up on what you just you, you talked, you, the tactics of violence that they did. So the the company itself was keen to project an image of civilization, cultural superiority. On the other hand, the residents in those regions resorted to acts of violence. So there seems to be this discrepancy between what the what the company wanted, the image the company wanted to project, and uh, what actually happened on the ground. So how did 
the residents and the superiors in London manage this difference? Were they always in agreement with one another or did those superiors in, um, in, in London knew what was happening? Yeah, so for some context, the residents' activities were primarily overseen by the Governor General in Calcutta. Uh, and the Governor General was then responsible for reporting their activities to ministers and company executives in London. Neither the Governor General in Calcutta nor his superiors in Britain were always pleased with how the residents conducted themselves. Often they were very displeased. Um, the use of violence was a pretty key point of difference but so too were the residents' systems of patronage, their acts of conspicuous consumption, and other behavior that was deemed to be somehow un-British. At times, residents were reprimanded or even relieved of their posts for this kind of activity, but for the most part, it seems like residents were actually given a lot of free reign to act as they deemed necessary. Now, partly this was because residents were seen to possess vital local knowledge. They always emphasized that their position on the ground, their local experience, meant that they were better equipped than politicians in London or even in Calcutta to decide what was appropriate or necessary behavior at court. Likewise, uh, as much as the residents' superiors might have expressed some distaste for the residents' tactics, they simultaneously shared many of the residents' prejudices about India and Indian politics, which meant that they were pretty open to being persuaded about the use of force, for example. This was particularly true when it came to the threat or the perceived threat of revolt, which everyone in the company were generally pretty inclined to brutally repress. What the histories of the residencies reveal, in short, is actually the hollowness of the company's civilizational rhetoric, the emptiness of all their claims to be somehow better than the Indian rulers that they were trying to control. What were the residents' representational strategies like? Residents adopted different strategies, sometimes dependent on their own individual personalities, a few preferred to adopt South Asian dress, while others were really adamantly opposed to this kind of assimilation. No matter where they stood on the issue of dress, however, all residents were agreed that a certain amount of luxury was necessary in order to maintain an image of authority at Indian courts. Their fear was that if anyone at court had a better house or better equipment than them, it would make the residency, and by extension the company, look politically and financially inferior. For this reason, residents made a really big deal out of the carriages that they traveled in, the houses they lived in, the sumptuous feasts that they hosted, and the gifts that they exchanged. Now, the resident superiors did not always accept this logic, as the company became more powerful, some company executives did start to question whether this kind of political theater was still necessary. For the residents, however, the line between theater and reality was actually very far from clear. And in a context where so much relied on personal influence, the appearance of power could sometimes be just as useful as the reality of it. And did they ever accept uh, uh, bribery or how did they establish the relationship? 
It's hard to know for sure how endemic bribery was at the residencies. We know for sure that it happened because residents describe it in some of their private letters. In more than one instance, for example, we have a case of ministers slipping diamonds into a resident's pocket to try and establish a relationship of goodwill. How much of this kind of thing went on is difficult to say because we're primarily reliant on the letters and records left by the residents themselves. And it was obviously not in their best interest to describe these kinds of transactions. There are cases of the residents' European assistance reporting them to the company's central government, but this kind of whistleblowing is pretty rare. In part, this is because the residents' European staff were often connected to him through ties of family or friendship. Residents were permitted to recommend individuals for these positions, which meant that they could pretty effectively insulate themselves from unfriendly eyes. Even in cases where the relationship was less intimate, however, reporting on your superior was still a significant personal and professional risk, especially given that the residents were often influential figures in the company who had personal connections to figures of high importance, both in India and Britain. So basically, we don't know exactly what residents were guilty of, but we know that they had plenty of opportunities to engage in this kind of activity, and that many of them did in fact return to Britain with pretty sizable fortunes, which suggests to us that they took pretty full advantage of this potential. Uh, the, 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 the way they ran the um uh, the system of alliance there so how did the employer use the expertise and the knowledge of the of indians in uh, in their administration did they ever um, use them in key posts the residencies as an institution could definitely not have functioned without indian experts residents employed large numbers of translators scribes and accountants most important, however, was the Mir Munshi, or Head Munshi, the resident's political secretary and personal representative. Sometimes these were men who had loans employing their former language tutors in this capacity, men who had actually known them since their first arrival in India. Others were employed because of their local embeddedness and knowledge of courtly society. Either way, Mir Munchies performed a number of really critical functions. They often met with the ruler and his ministers on the residents' behalf. They accompanied the residents to meetings where they frequently acted as translator. They advised on political tactics and courtly ceremonial. And in short, they were really vital mediators who shaped the residents' life at court. And. Um... You also talk about the way they uh, they they established a uh, relationship with the royal family, and they particularly were interested uh, in, to to influence and mobilize royal women. Can you talk about that um, chapter of this history as well? The relationships between residents and the royal family could be really complicated. At many of the courts that I examine in my book, the line of succession was traditionally fluid, which meant that the eldest son of the ruling monarch had a strong claim to succeed to the throne, but that claim was not incontrovertible and could often be challenged by uncles or younger brothers. 
So in this context, it was often the individual with the strongest support base who emerged triumphant, not simply the eldest son. As the company began to impose its influence on Indian courts, however, this tradition of open competition was perceived as a potential threat to the residents' control. Not only did residents want to minimize disruptions and ensure a succession that was favorable to themselves, but they also saw their intervention as a kind of bargaining chip, chip that could be used to keep rulers compliant. In general, then, residents tended to back the eldest son as heir to the throne, unless the eldest son was for some reason hostile to them, in which case they would look for more tractable alternatives. Because of this policy towards royal succession, the younger sons of ruling monarchs often resented the resident, who they saw as an obstacle preventing them from achieving their full political potential. There are many cases of younger sons assaulting the resident or attacking the residency, seemingly out of sheer frustration at their narrowed horizons. At the same time, however, the longer history of sibling rivalry at court also meant that the resident could be a source of protection and support for younger brothers who worried that the ruling monarch saw them as a political threat. It wasn't that uncommon for ruling monarchs to keep their younger brothers under surveillance and even house arrest. Some younger brothers claimed to fear for their lives. And for these men, the residency represented a refuge. Some even sought asylum in company territories. For the residents, these younger brothers often represented a potentially useful alternative that they might install on the throne in cases where the ruler was resistant to them. In cases where they remained at court, these male relatives were also seen as valuable sources of information who could provide the resident with critical insights into courtly life and family dynamics. But what the residents sometimes discovered was that these men were actually just as unwilling to become puppets as their siblings. These male relatives had loyalties and aspirations of their own. Their interests might sometimes have overlapped with the company, but that didn't mean that they were just instruments that could be used for the company's purposes. Now, the residents' relationship with royal women was somewhat distinctive. At dynastic courts, proximity to the monarch is often equivalent to political power. And at the courts I examine in this book, the ruler's wives, and even more so his mother or his grandmother, were capable of exercising important, even if informal, influence. Not only did these women have really close personal relationships with the ruler in many cases, but their place within his household meant that they often had privileged access to sensitive information. Apart from their connection to the ruling monarch, royal women also possessed resources of their own. They collected revenue, pursued trade, patronized scholars, and added to all this was the symbolic capital that they enjoyed because of their royal bloodline. So this combination of different factors meant that women were really active players in factional politics at court, making them either helpful allies to the resident or else formidable enemies. In order to enlist these royal women to their cause, the residents had to provide them with pretty concrete benefits. Sometimes this involved quelling disorders in their estates and assisting in the collection of tax. Other times it involved facilitating women's charitable projects 
or ensuring duty-free trade within the company's territories. Most importantly, however, residents promised protection. With the residents' support, women personal fortunes from being seized by the reigning monarch. Women also enlisted the residents as guarantors of their wills, thereby ensuring that when they died, their fortunes would be passed on to their servants and dependents. So in the unstable world of the court, the resident could be a potentially valuable counterweight to the authority of the monarch. To operate effectively, residents therefore often relied on manipulating and exploiting pre-existing tensions at court, uh, as well as within the larger political landscape. Uh, that was a very cunning technique they used. <laughs> uh, <laughs> before we end this conversation, is there any other project you're currently work on, working on? Yeah, so I'm currently working on a new book that arises out of some of the questions that were raised um, by my PhD research. Many of the residents complained about a culture of secrecy within the company. They argued that if people back in Britain truly knew what the company was guilty of and all the insidious tactics that they had been using, uh, that the British public would never stand for such behavior. And so the premise of my new book is to investigate precisely how true this perception was. Was there really a culture of secrecy within the company and how much did the British public know about what they were doing? And particularly central to this project is the role of soldiers in the public sphere and of unauthorized disclosures from within the military. Uh Dr. Carrie Wilkinson, thank you very, very much for taking the time to talk with us about your wonderful, uh, wonderful book on New Books Network. Thank you very much for having me.